Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we hear from two influential women, disruptors. One's making her mark in the world of comedy and publishing, and the other is advocating for women and girls across the country. Later in the show, actress and comedian Phoebe Robinson talks about her new book of essays called Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. But first, Teresa Younger. She led the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women for the Connecticut General Assembly and was the executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut. Now she's president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. It's a national foundation co-founded by Gloria Steinem in 1973, and it focuses on policy changes impacting women. This week, Younger will be inducted into the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame as a leader for social justice. Teresa, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. What a great title, Disrupted. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. You know, we're excited to have you on the show. Our listeners will know you for the work that you did here in the state and also nationally. But now leading the Ms. Foundation is an opportunity for you to take all of the work that you've been doing in Connecticut and put it on an even larger scale. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the the real work of the foundation, talk to us about the mission of the Ms. Foundation. Yeah, well, the mission is super simple because our mission at the Ms. Foundation is to build women's collective power. And so we right up front acknowledge gender, gender expansiveness, the power of money, and we're a public foundation. So we are constantly raising dollars to move those dollars to the field so that we can support grassroots movement building led by women and girls, particularly women and girls of color that are in the domestic United States and US territories. And in addition to that, we leverage the organizational impact and influence Uh, being nearly 50 years old, we're able to flex our muscles. With age comes wisdom and experience and the institution, the Ms. Foundation for Women is nearly 50 years old. And so we try to influence policy and advocacy, communications and strategy. Um, and and um, additionally, we look at how to support women-led organizations in this country. And so much has changed for women and girls over the last 50 years in this country but often it feels like it has not changed enough or that we're just seeing new iterations of these storied problems. And one of the things that we did on this show was to talk about feminist movements and in particular, the voices of women who too often get overlooked. And that's been a real criticism of the mainstream feminist movement that it often overlooks women and girls of color and focuses instead on the experiences of white women. How does the feminist movement influence the work of the Ms. Foundation, but also provide an opportunity for you to do something different in recognition of that critique? Yeah. So, you know, quite honestly, we just have to recognize time. 
50 years ago, women didn't even have a voice at the table. We didn't have, you know, we couldn't get credit in our own name, right? We weren't working the jobs we're working today. Our voices were not heard. So 50 years ago, under second wave white feminism, we were seeing a lot about how do I individually and thus everybody come along with me to build up community, to acknowledge that my voice is powerful, to raise consciousness around what that looks like. Um, and we tried to sweep everything together. And there was a time and a place for that. We have seen in the past, you know, seven years that I've been with the Ms. Foundation, but even before that, um, we have seen this, uh, this awareness, this awakening of where women of color's voices have been. And we started saying it out loud, the more there were women of color like myself sitting in places of leadership. So for 30 years, the Ms. Foundation had been run by white women. Didn't mean they had women of color on their staff, absolutely. But in terms of who's the lead voice, right? Who's the lead voice? And so when I came to the foundation, I said, I'm not interested in the women's movement or even in the feminist movement. What I am most interested in are in the movements that affect the lives of women and their communities. And the breadth of that language was to actually say, it is about expansiveness not exclusion. So I say we center women and girls of color at the Ms. Foundation as a point of inclusion, not an exclusion, right? When we say women, we instantly assume we are talking about white women. But when we say women of color, everybody else goes, oh my gosh, but what about us? And I'm like, no, that's exactly what we're saying. When in the pool of inequality, it is women of color particularly black women who are sitting at the places of most disenfranchisement and where systemic oppression has continued to squelch us, right? Where racism, sexism, white supremacy, misogyny has continued to sit. And so I work in the women's, in the women's expansive space. So gender non-binary, trans folks, um, gender non-conforming. In that, we're talking about gender expansiveness and so this new, new feminist movement, whatever wave we're in now, is about building collectively and equalizing the voices of everybody. One of the things that I really appreciate about the work that you've been doing, Teresa, is that, you know, the Ms. Foundation thinks of its founding mothers and very prominent amongst those founding mothers is Gloria Steinem. And I remember listening to a conversation with you and Gloria Steinem at the Omni Hotel in New Haven, where you addressed this critique head on to say, it's not about making excuses. It's not about apologizing for ignorance, but saying now that this awareness exists, how do all of us and wherever we find ourselves, what do we do with that? And so I want to share with our listeners, uh, Ms. Foundation has four key values. And the one that stands out based on what you just said is that value of interconnectedness. We believe that by achieving equity for women of color, we achieve equity for all. Why do you see women of color as that sort of leverage point that if we can address these concerns, it creates a better space for all? Yeah, so I mean, we can list study after study that shows where the greatest systematic oppression has impacted people and yet we still survive on the other side. The four values you talk about were written by and for the women of the Ms. Foundation. 
So it was written by and for the women of color within the Ms. Foundation. And what we said was this is about being really open and honest. And in the pool of inequality, we're gonna drop one, one pebble. We're a public foundation. We don't have gazillions of dollars. We have a couples of millions of dollars, which sounds like a lot, but in the, in the big scheme of philanthropy, it is nothing. We are one of the smallest public national foundations, right? But in the pool of inequality, I'm gonna drop one pebble. And what we said at the Ms. Foundation was when that pebble hits the water, we're gonna drop that pebble over women and girls of color. And when that pebble hits the water, everybody who is in the pool of inequality will be impacted. The ripple effects, the interconnectedness, you cannot sit in the pool of oppression and not be impacted when one group is being lifted up or one group's voice is being lifted up because guess what? We are not just women and girls of color. We are also fitting in to other identities within that pool. So we may have disabilities. We may identify as LGBTQ. We may um, be older. We may be younger. We may, be, you know, like that. We may be of multiple identities within that pool. And so that means when we do that, we develop out those relationships. We have a tighter way to make it happen and a greater impact. I also have been, you know, really. I have nothing to lose. Life is too short for us not to speak our truth. And I had the privilege of working in Connecticut for many, many years. I was with the ACLU before I was with the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women. And so I have nothing to lose. If I die tomorrow, I want them to say, there was a black and indigenous woman that led the Ms. Foundation and she just kept asking the question and she was okay being uncomfortable so that somebody else could be uncomfortable so that we can get to a place where we're all comfortable. And that's what we see, you know, when we think about disrupted and the disruptions, disrupting that comfort on our own terms, because there's so many things we cannot control, but how we respond to them, how we define ourselves for ourselves is one of the spaces where we can be affirmed. Your foundation has a campaign called hashtag my feminism is. Talk to us about that hashtag and the kinds of stories that you are looking to gather by centering what feminism is. Yeah, when I when I got to the Ms. Foundation, uh, I, I did a listening tour. I traveled around the country, um, you know, nearly 80,000 miles within the domestic United States. It's a lot of traveling. And I heard this, like, feminism isn't real. The social, political, and economic equality of all genders. You know, what is that? We don't need feminism anymore. We need a new word. And I had to take a step back and say, hmm, do we need a new word? Or do we just need to make sure that we have aligned um, the language that we think is important? And so we did this campaign called My Feminism Is, and people get to define it the way they want to. It can be political, it can be economic, it can be social, it can be what, however people want to define it. That means you're coming to the table from an inclusive point of view and that you are willing to be in deep relationship and you are willing to test and try and push on the systems of oppression. And so it's been really an interesting campaign. What we've said to people is, you do not have to have a PhD in women's studies to be a feminist. You do not need to, you know, um, have, have written 20 books about feminism to be a feminist. What you need to do is have a lived experience 
that recognizes the equity and equality of all and be actively moving in that space. So one of the things I realized was we have everyday feminists in our lives. It's you, it's your mother, it's your auntie, it's your best friend who wouldn't necessarily in the United States don't initially define themselves as feminists. But when you're all sitting around and talking, you're going, oh yeah, I'm a feminist. So we wanted to create a space that allowed everyday feminists to define feminism for themselves. And it also, in the term my feminism is the social, political and economic equality of all genders, plural, right? Is an expansive language that says, however you define, you can define as a feminist. So men, gender non-conforming, trans folks, right? Everybody gets to hold a definition that works for them as long as it holds to the principles of transparency and inclusiveness and uh, is, is multi-issue uh, multi and multi-identity um, based. I want to go back to that point about being gender expansive and gender inclusive, because again, where we are today of understanding the full spectrum of gender identities and the ways in which our self-identity is often constrained by these very narrow categories and conceptions means that in building movements, people often wonder, where do I fit in this organizing space? Or... Can we talk about the lives of trans people in their fullness and not just talk about trans issues when we're thinking about the disproportionate number of murders that go unsolved? That's a piece of it. But that gender expansiveness is also about the expansiveness of opportunities. What are the ways in which Ms. is pushing that so that people say feminism can be a space and an opening space on the terms that people decide for themselves? So, you know, one of the things that we've done at the foundation that is different in the field of philanthropy is we have stopped funding by issue area. So much of philanthropy will fund based on gender, based on economic security, based on, uh, you know, um, uh, health and, and, and uh, reproductive choices. Like that's how philanthropy has typically done it. What we have said at the Ms. Foundation is we are not going to fund in those spaces in the way that we're asking people to define them. We're actually going to fund centering women and girls of color. That's where we're starting the conversation. And so we're pushing philanthropy to rethink about how it funds itself. And so by saying that, um, we are actually creating space for people to come in and define how they will. We've actually asked them to apply as they will. So we did this a report called Pocket Change, how women and girls of color are doing more with less. When we, put, when we were gathering the information for that report, we found that people would use, were using multiple strategies, multiple um, identities, and multiple issues that they were working on. So why are we asking people to divide themselves up? So the model at Ms. is show up as yourself in your fullest self. So we're not going to ask you to divide up who you are 
we're going to ask you to show up in your full self. So what does that mean? In our grant making, we're doing it that way. In uh, in where we develop out our, our organizational strategies, like who's our auditor and what does it look like to, you know, to be a, the person that's helping us with our endowment and how do we raise money? All those pieces are from a spot that's saying we're going to be fully inclusive. So we say explicitly that in our vision for the organization, we say we, uh, we believe in a safe and just world where power and possibility are not limited by race, gender, class, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, or age. We believe that equity and inclusion are the cornerstones of a true democracy in which the worth and dignity of every person is valued. And that's really where we, that's really what we have, you know, felt very committed to is saying our feminism at the Ms. Foundation is inclusive of, not exclusive to. After the break, we continue our conversation with Teresa Younger, president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. And later, comedian and author Phoebe Robinson talks about how she's helping to create more spaces for voices of color in the publishing industry. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. Feminism. 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 Feminism is the social, economic, and political equality of all genders. All genders. All genders. All genders. That's audio from a video campaign being led by the Ms. Foundation for Women. They're gathering people's stories and definitions of feminism and challenging the conversation around equal rights. This hour, we're talking with the president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation about feminism and their work to support women and girls across the country. Later in the hour, we hear from the co-host of the Two Dope Queens podcast, Phoebe Robinson. She talks about her life in the pandemic and her new book of essays. But now we continue our conversation with Teresa Younger, who this week became one of the newest members of Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame. I asked her about her reaction to the new abortion law in Texas and what it may mean for women across the country. So I think one of the things that we have to do in this country, as well as in Texas, is we have to stop assuming that we know better than the other person in terms of bodily autonomy. This country has been predicated and based on the assumption that women cannot make choices with their bodies. And so we actually have to stop being body shamed and we have to stop allowing for health insurance companies to make determinations around uh, when and if we become a parent. We have to recognize that parenting with dignity means not parenting at all sometimes and parenting in alternative ways. And so what we are seeing in Texas, we should not be surprised. I mean, I know people were like, I was heartbroken when I saw the legislation actually passed, just like many people were. I was frustrated. I was pissed off, all of it. And we should not be surprised because in this country, we do not and have continued to not have full respect for women's bodily autonomy. And so we actually must decide we're going to take action. 
On October 2nd, there's going to be rallies in Connecticut and across the, the United States around access to abortion, access to determine when and if you want to parent with dignity. That is what that is about. And when you make those decisions, you are also making economic and environmental decisions for yourself and for your community. And we have to like get to a spot where we're not apologetic for our own power over our bodies. And I encourage strongly people to say their speak their truths, to um, speak up and to ask the question and make sure that we do not elect people who are not aligned with our political alignments. And so in Texas, we're, I'm heartbroken to see what's happening in Texas. Women traveling eight and 10 hours over the border to be able to have, to make choices about their bodies. That is a crying shame. Uber drivers and Lyft drivers who are concerned about whether they will be reported that we, that, you know, that somebody else is going to make a determination of what is happening with our bodies, with decisions that we should be making with our doctors and ourselves, not with a public conversation. Those are, you know, that that's where I get most fed up. But it, I will say this, what is happening in Texas can be changed. And we are living in a different time. If this was 50 years ago, we wouldn't know, we'd have the red phone system, right? Where you were calling people and saying, hey, I need an abortion, where can I get one? Um, now we have text messages and systems in place. If you can open your home up and have somebody spend a night or two in your home, do it. If you can drive somebody for a weekend, drive them. If you can watch somebody else's children so they can go take care of themselves, make that volunteer. Make sure you are voting. Make sure you are explicitly asking the questions that need to get handled. You do not have to do everything. This fight will not end and we have to continue to do one thing every day. And so what we see in Texas, we will probably see in Alabama and Mississippi across the South doesn't mean it's right. It means that we have to make sure that we are supporting our sisters and activists in those other states to be able to have the wherewithal to do the work they need to do to push back against the legislation that's going on there. And we need to not think that Connecticut is so far removed that it's all going to be okay because we still have legislators in Connecticut who want to tie the hands of women who need to make decisions and want to make decisions about their bodies. And we need to hold them accountable for everything that's going on. We need to have, make sure every state codifies Wade the way that Wade has been codified in Connecticut. We need to get it codified on the federal level and we need to make sure that every state has it. And then we need to pay attention to what's happening with the federal and uh, Supreme Court judges. I want to talk about how we build coalitions across women and across communities to raise some of these issues, but to also be very clear about the many ways in which we value and privilege certain bodies and certain experiences differently. As you know, um, the, the family of Gabby Petito has recently laid her to rest, a young woman presumed murdered by her boyfriend. And it raised this question of why the media focuses on certain missing cases differently, or, or what some have called the missing white woman syndrome. Because we know, Teresa, that indigenous women go missing, unaccounted for, and unfortunately often murdered at alarming rates, and their stories never make it onto the news. How do we build coalitions so that people say, let's talk about the safety and vulnerability of women, centering these experiences of women of color, but not pitting women against each other so that they feel they have to choose who to support? 
Yeah. So I think one of the things we all have to get um, comfortable with is that every person's story is their story and they have to be able to tell it. But, you know, when it comes to um, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, which breaks my heart um, because they have the, the, the abuse, the abuse rates of, of indigenous women and girls is one in three, right? The murder rates are even higher. And those murders are not being, are not happening um, by community members on the reservation. They are happening as people drive through, pick up people, kidnap them, you know, uh, traffic them, etc. And I, I find that we actually have to start saying every time we see on TV or read in a newspaper about somebody who a white woman oftentimes has been murdered, uh, how many voices, how many stories didn't get told because they didn't know a reporter or they didn't have money to pay uh, or the FBI said, just wait a few more days and this person ends up murdered. What we have to be willing to do is show up for each other. We don't have to speak for each other. And I think it's really important that we show up so we can show up and just stand in the crowd. We can show up and, and, and speak a voice. We can say a name, but we can also ask the question whose voices aren't being heard. And so we ask, we ask, we ask all the time and we just have to ask. I, I sit in a place of privilege. So whose voice isn't getting heard? And we all need to ask that, regardless of race, gender, identity, ethnicity, whatever, whose voice isn't getting heard? And your voice is valuable enough to be heard. So asking people and respecting if they choose not to speak up, but they want to be present, right? We assume because people don't wanna tell their stories that their stories aren't valid or they're not true or we can't hear them. No, guess what? That is why the Me Too movement when it started with Tarana Burke was so powerful. There were those who had voice who could speak. And then there were other young girls around the room who just said, me too. I don't have to tell you my story. You don't, have, you don't get to get off on hearing the awfulness of that story. You just have to understand that this is a reflection of who I am too. So when we are seeing this, we ask people, how do we show up in community, in sisterhood, with respect of the, those who are missing, those communities who are suffering? We can't just say it's a shame. We have to show up. We have to talk to 10 of our friends about what we read in the newspaper and ask ourselves, do a critical analysis about why that story was told, but that one wasn't. The say her name hashtag and the movement around say her name, you know, is really about the fact that we there are so many women and girls in this country, um, identified or not, who are uh, who are have violence perpetrated against them. You know, the first half, we believe in a safe and just world, not just a safe world. And safety can be really deep. Safety is not in people's homes sometimes. Safety is, 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 you know, around how police identify and what prison systems look like and who our partners are and who, who, who are the folks we don't know that are perpetuating violence and creating justice in the process. 
You know, one of the things during the Obama administration was um, the use of the White House Council on Women and Girls as a think tank of sorts, a convening space that people could come together at this national level, but raise the voices and experiences of what was happening in their community. What would you say are the one or two things that you want the Biden administration to focus on for the future of women and girls? Yeah, so we've been in conversations with the Gender Policy Council, uh, and and they are looking at a domestic and global approach to what is happening to women and girls um, across uh, the globe. Uh, And one of the things that we have said to them is be respectful and understand what your research is telling you. Ask the questions and be explicit about where you are centering those conversations. Um, feel free and be willing to invite in voices that you otherwise may not have had. So not just the Teresa Younger voice, but I have thousands of grantee partners across the country who have done work on the grassroots, who are doing it in their communities. Those voices are more valuable than mine, right? Um, And so what we have said to them is uh, we are watching, we are holding you accountable. We want research, we want information, we want integrated strategies that do not separate out our health and safety from our economic security, that do not separate out our housing from our health care, right? These are all completely entwined and you have to present strategies and policies that reflect all of that. And we have to look at it for the long haul. We want to be talking in this administration about generational change so that my nieces and nephews and and their nieces and nephews um, are are living in a better world. So what information does the White House get? How is that influencing their policy? Where are they hosting roundtables? Who are they considering experts? Um, And then what policies and how are they integrated? Um, And what can we do? We need to do today because we will not have tomorrow, whether it's environmental justice or economic justice or reproductive rights, racial equity, the list goes on and on and on. We have to we have to move today. And that's what we've said to the White House. We have to move today. And we have experts in the field and we have experts in the administration and they need to be listened to and they need to disrupt the administration. The policies that have been put out there, the systems that are at play, um, need to be shaken up because they clearly have not been designed for or by women or women and girls of color. And we actually have to reposition the conversation. Teresa, you are a 2021 inductee into the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame. First of all, congratulations on that accomplishment. It is incredibly well-deserved. And I have to ask you, what does that mean for you? You know, (laughs) Um, Being inducted into the Hall of Fame is about what I do. It's not about why I do. It's a lifetime of what I do. I was a little black girl who was an Air Force brat and grew up in North Dakota and moved to Connecticut and has made her life and her career in Connecticut. But I was a Girl Scout. And the why I do it is because I believe in making the world a better place. I believe that everybody has value and voice. And I, the why I do it is because I honestly believe that we are destined to um, make 
our light shine and to allow the light to shine for other people. And so I am thrilled, I'm honored. Um, I am one of uh, what I would say, hundreds of thousands of women that I have had the opportunity to meet and know who are doing our best every day. We are trying to make the world a better place. We are trying to create equity and inclusion. We are trying to make sure that we are living truth and dignity to ourselves. Um, and and that, that's what we have to continue to do. So I'm honored. Uh, I am privileged to receive awards, to be recognized for my heart's work, which is to represent women and girls, particularly women and girls of color who are trying to make their neighborhoods, their communities, their states and this country and the globe a much better place. Teresa Younger is president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women and a 2021 inductee into the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame. Teresa, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and congrats on the show. I love it. (laughs) After the break, comedian and actress Phoebe Robinson on her new book of essays, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy. Oh, my God. Asking him (laughs) to produce my podcast Uh for free. Yes. And the payment is just... Don't go there. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Please don't go there. You say that so much in our relationship. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. You're like, I know what you're saying. It's wildly inappropriate. Just stop. We have neighbors. And I'm like, but it's funny. And you're like, but dignity. That was comedian and actor Phoebe Robinson speaking with her partner on her new podcast, Black Frasier. In 2016, Phoebe broke barriers as co-host of the podcast and HBO show, Two Dope Queens. The show frequently highlighted comedians of color, women, and members of the LGBTQ community. Phoebe has a new collection of essays out this week titled, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. She's also starting a new publishing imprint, Tiny Reparations Books. Phoebe, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. You have accomplished so much in your career as a comedian, an actor, an author, and now having this new book. Did you always picture yourself in this path into the entertainment industry? No, I mean, when I was growing up as a kid, I used to watch a lot of film and um, a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows. And I thought that I was going to be a screenwriter and write really serious movies. Um, I really had no interest in comedy. Um, And then 13 years ago, my good friend from college, Lindsay, she wanted to take a stand-up class at Caroline's uh, on Broadway. And she asked me to do it. And I was just like, stand-up is dumb. Like, I have zero interest in it. And I was looking at an indie film company at the time. And she said, you know, you don't really like your job. This class is only eight weeks. Let's just do it together. It'll be something funny. And then we can move on. And I said, okay, sounds cool. And I fell in love with it right away. And so that really changed the trajectory of my life. And then all this stuff that's happening now, I think, I didn't architect every single sort of development and beat of this 
uh, journey so far, but I think I've just always been open and sort of really explore things that I'm interested in. So I kind of just pick the things that I think I sort of have a knack for and then develop those skill sets and actually try and become good at them. You know, for an outsider looking at your career, they may say, look, she's had all of this success. It must have been easy for her. But you've been very candid about your path and about how you navigate others' doubt. What did it mean for you to come to that realization that you have to lean into yourself and not worry about failure as the obstacle? Yeah, I I mean, I just think no matter what industry you're working in, um, if you're trying to push yourself to sort of achieve certain things, you're your career at the end of the day, there's going to, it's going to be littered with more no's than yeses. So it's about just getting comfortable with that and accepting that. And, you know, the whole Lady Gaga, you just need one person to say yes. It's like, it's, I mean, she said all the time, um, but it's true. And so once you go, okay, I know that I'm going to try and pitch this thing and it won't work out or that thing won't work out or I'll I'll audition here and then that won't work out. But then this thing happens and that turns into something. You're like, okay, great. So I I think the problem is, is that a lot of people in society like to pretend as though it's just this sort of like steady, just climb and there's no sort of obstacles or no hiccups. And I don't think anyone who's successful or has a career they want to have has just it's just winning the whole time, being okay with the the failure and learning from the failure, I think is huge. One of the major successes that you've had that many of our listeners may be familiar with was your podcast and TV show, Two Dope Queens, which introduced people to a whole new set of voices and a way of saying on our own terms, in our own voices, we're going to have fun together, create something, but actually be able to challenge how people are thinking. Now looking at the show or looking back on the show, what do you want its legacy to be? I mean, I just think I wanted to just be an example of sort of just a celebration of different voices and people feeling good. And I think Jessica and I really were just sort of, we just wanted to have this platform that we could share with other comics and other talent. And, you know, as long as people laugh, keep laughing at our stuff and we turn to it and they find different voices that they maybe haven't heard before. I think that's great. I am really proud of what we created. And I think it, you know, I didn't, I certainly didn't think that it was going to turn into all that when Jessica and I met, but I'm so happy that it did. And that, you know, we're able to have people on like Bowen Yang and Michelle Buteau and just really phenomenal talent. So I'm, I'm really proud of that. This is a show where we like to highlight disruptors, people who are, breaking barriers who are in spaces that may not have been created for them, but are using that platform to really do something powerful. And one of the things that you're doing now, disrupting those spaces for the good, is that you are now entering the publishing industry with tiny reparations books. Talk to us about that project and why you wanted to enter that space. Yeah, so it's a, a literary imprint, and it's when I met my a, a lit agent, Robert, back in 2014, I said this was always a goal of mine, so 
this was always a part of the plan. Like I just have always been an avid reader and, you know, I worked really hard on my first two books. And I think Plume, my pu- publisher really saw that. And so when I brought up to them pre-COVID that I was interested in starting an imprint, you know, I think they took me seriously. I think they saw that this wasn't just sort of a vanity project that, you know, some people want to have a little bit of a platform where like, I'll have an imprint and then don't want to do any of the work. And, you know, I certainly remember in 2015 how hard it was for me shopping around my first book and people were just saying, nobody wants to read a book written by a Black woman. These kind of books don't sell. They're not relatable. So I think with my imprint, I just always wanted someone to know that like, hey, if I don't decide, if I decide not to publish your manuscript, it's not because you're a woman. It's not because of the color of your skin or your sexual orientation or how you identify. Um I really just want this to be a place where we can have really voice driven wide range of talent here and really be one one imprint of hopefully many more to come that really sort of prioritize the the vast range of voices out there. There's a range of voices, a range of stories to be told, a range of perspectives. And you mentioned that you have now set out to release your third book. And that new book is called Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. And I have to tell you, it warmed my heart when I read that title because it reminded me of home and it reminded me of all the things that I heard growing up from my grandparents about good home training. Before our audience that may not be familiar, talk to us about the inspiration for that title and why you chose it for your third book. Yeah, I mean, my parents are the same way. They they really like to keep a clean house and they would sweep and mop and vacuum and dust every week. That was like what they enjoyed doing. And they were just like the outside world is funky and trifling. So do not bring that mess in here. And that ended up just being one of the things that stuck with me. And I remember when I was in, I went to college and you know, I got my my bedding from Target. Shout out to Room Essentials. I was so stoked and I really did not want people sitting on my bed. I'm like, you were just on the subway and New York is dirty. And I think just because I write a lot about my parents in this book and it was really fun. I thought oh, this could be a great title for the book. I like a, I like a funny title. I like a title that jumps out at you. And I just feel like this is one that did that feels, you know, kind of timeless in a way. The book feels timeless, and it also feels multi-generational and intergenerational as well, because this is your experience and your story, but it connects to the experiences of so many people. And while comedy is present in the title, there are also moments of incredible vulnerability within this book. How do you find making that switch from the comedic to the serious, or do you see those two as being interconnected? Yeah, I think I see them being interconnected. I think that's like most people, you know, I think with this being my third book, I think I've really honed the ability to be able to sort of weave in and out of the funny in and out of the serious, because I certainly didn't want the book to be a lecture. And I also didn't want the book to just be like, ha 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 ha, like nothing really affects me. Everything's I'm just floating above it all. And so you know, I really just sort of developed a sense of rhythm just sort of with writing in general over, I don't know, I went to uh, college to study writing back in 2002. So almost 20 years. (laughs) Yeah. And for me, 
I just sort of follow like my gut instinct. And like, if I hit a big laugh, I'm just sort of like, okay, I could come down and everyone's with me on this journey. So I could just take it down and have a downbeat and sort of get into the nitty gritty of something and then like go back up and have fun again. And so I, I know it sounds just like, I just figured it out, but that's, <laughs> that's truly how I did the process of writing and just sort of, you know, also with stand-up comedy, just so much of my work is just rhythm-based. So I think it's almost kind of like instinctual now where I know where I can pause and be serious and when to have fun. You're able to take things that we would see as the mundane, the everyday, and put the spin on it that makes people connect, but also makes them say, okay, I see where we're going here. You've also talked about how the pandemic disrupted a lot of things for you, of, of plans that you had, ways that you thought things were going, and having to, to reset. What would you say has been the biggest lesson that you've learned throughout this pandemic, either about yourself or about your work and the things that you cherish? Yeah, I think the, the biggest lesson that I learned is I, I really can't control anything. <laughs> I think, you know, when you have a global pandemic, you're like, well, okay, I'm just going to go sit down, you know, because I think a lot of us go through our lives. You're like, okay, I'm scheduling out my day. I'm playing out my week. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that and get this done and see these friends. And I'm going to save up for vacation and I'm going to plan those 10 days. And the pandemic is kind of like, girl, ain't none of that happened. So what you going to do now? And so I think I really had to sort of learn how to deal with truly not being in control. And even, I mean, honestly, before the pandemic, most, most of us aren't in control of our lives. Like if we really want to get real about it, like there's so much outside of our control, but I think that just really crystallized it for me. So I think it allowed me to sort of be like, okay, you're type A and you can't control everything how are you going to move through your life then? Because you to, to to try and be in charge of everything is just would be like just punching a wall, like it just wouldn't make any sense. And so I really got to a place where I'm sort of reprioritized and thought about, okay, how can I have these little moments that how can I create these moments for myself, whether it's joyful, whether it's a moment of relaxation whether it's a moment of like deep discussion, how can I have that in my life while still maintaining the flexibility of having to adjust? I mean, we're still in the pandemic and we're, we're constantly adjusting. And, you know, my boyfriend works in music and he's touring right now with a rock band. And so it's like, they had a bunch of overseas dates in, in November, they canceled all those. And now they're trying to get, you, you know, it's just like, and now they're getting like U.S. dates. And it's just like, you have to kind of be able to just roll with the punches. You mentioned your boyfriend and you talk in your book and you're very open about some of the challenges associated with interracial dating. What do you see as a challenge with that? And do you think that things are changing for the better in this country? You know, I think for that, it's just, it's always just sort of kind of the cultural things that, you know, he's a white guy from the UK and I feel like he's learned a lot about black culture through dating me. And it's not like, he's like, Hey, let's sit down and you teach me everything. Like it's not, <laughs> he's not doing that. He's doing it on his own. And he's just sort of 
kind of like observing and watching. And, you know, of course, like any couple, you have those moments where you're like butting heads. But I think for the most part, we're really like we're on the same team. We got each other's backs. And so I think it's really been going well. And I think last summer, like really, you know, opened his eyes to a lot. And so he took that information and, you know, he brought it back to his friends in the UK and he was having deep conversations with them and I didn't have to be involved. And it was great that he just took ownership of that and said, I got to I got to educate my friends on what's going on here, because I think a lot of them back home were really sort of shocked by what was going on here. Do you think things are are getting better? Not for you, but in general, do you see some semblance of hope that things will get better? I mean, are we not like at the peak intensity of last summer? Yes, that's fantastic. But I mean, there's just a lot of systemic work that needs to change. And I don't know if any of that is really happening. You know what I mean? I think a lot of companies and a lot of businesses would, you know, release their PR statements and do the black squares on Instagram. But in terms of actual change, I, I, I don't know. But do I have hope that we can get there? Yes. Do I think it'll happen in my lifetime? I'm not so sure. But, you know, I think I'm going to keep trying to show up every day. And I think there are hundreds and thousands of people who are genuinely, you know, about it and really want to show up every day. And so if if that army can keep growing, I think we can make some seismic change. You are showing up every day in your art and in your creativity to provide platforms in multiple ways. And I think that's one of the ways that we connect people to see what's possible, but to also affirm that humanity and that worth. Phoebe Robinson is a comedian, actor, and author of the new book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Phoebe, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been great, and you have a fantastic voice. This week's episode was produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. And before we go, October marks one year since we launched our weekly show, Disrupted, on Connecticut Public Radio. And on an upcoming show, we want to feature the voices from our audience. What's a disruption impacting your life that you're most worried about right now? And what's one that's giving you hope? You can leave us a voicemail at 860-275-7311. That's 860-275-7311. Or send a voice memo to disrupted at ctpublic.org. And thank you for being part of our first year. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back next week.